Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hey guys, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again, as always, on the Red Light Report. Glad to have you back. If you listened last week, you know what you're in for this episode as far as learning more about this quote-unquote invisible light that's dramatically impacting our health, potentially more so than food and exercise and those kind of quote-unquote techniques or strategies health-wise that have been ubiquitous for as long as I've been alive, decades and decades, possibly centuries, it's diet and exercise, diet and exercise. And for a long time, that was accurate until the late 1800s, early 1900s, when we had this stream of electrical innovations and different iterations of those technologies over time that has dramatically impacted our health, kind of like the invisible killer or the silent killer, so to speak, is this electricity, electromagnetic radiation of the non-native variety, meaning man-made or, or not coming from nature. And so regardless, we're literally swimming and living in an ocean of light that's negatively impacting our health, negatively impacting our metabolism, which is synonymous with saying, leading to dysfunctional mitochondria or mitochondrial dysfunction, which we know is a major, major player in the vast majority of diseases and illnesses we see today. So if you listen last week, you know that we went through the first half of the chapter that looked at uh, the history of electricity and its impact on heart health. And so we're going to finish that chapter today. But I'll also add before we get started here, since we've done that uh, initial solo sode on the Invisible Rainbow last week, the book, I read through some other chapters as I'm getting close to the end of the book. It's a, it's a big one. And just to give you guys an idea of how well researched and cited this book is, let me pull out the book here. So there's 392 pages of book that you read, so to speak. And then the actual number of pages in the book is 564. So there's 172 pages of citations that that Arthur Fistenberg went through. So just to give you an idea, this isn't just a hunch or something he fumbled upon, so to speak. He did some deep, deep research and due diligence to connect all the dots and put this together for us. So uh, this book, again, it's entitled The Invisible Rainbow chronicles the history of, of electricity and life. Again, as, as I read, and I'm getting close to the end of the book, there's a chapter specifically on how electricity and these radio waves and these ultrasonic waves that these inventions have bestowed upon us, for better and for worse, obviously, uh, how it's affected bees, how it's affected birds, how it's affected trees and plants, how it's affected sea life, and then, of course, towards the end here, how it's just affected people outside of specific diagnoses. And so we'll wrap up the chapter entitled Irritable Heart Today, and then I've gotten a lot of good feedback from you guys, so I greatly appreciate that. And so if that continues, I'll probably do a part three, and I'll just highlight what I just spoke about. I'll highlight how electricity has affected the bees, birds, plants, and animals, and then humans for the for a, for a part three, because I do think people need to know this information. And especially if you're into any type of health and wellness, you're just trying to improve your health and your family's health. You're looking for the longevity, that little edge you can have, or just more vitality for as long as possible. Like this is it. This is the foundation. Like I think I with my weekly email with the podcast, I think I mentioned you can't out-exercise and you can't out-diet a poor electrical health. Or you can't do those and omit strategies surrounding EMFs. You have to have a, a line of strategies as to where you're, you're helping mitigate EMF exposure 
or you're helping prevent it. Um, and that could literally mean moving, moving out of a big city because the more people you're surrounded by, that means more devices, uh, more people connecting to the satellites above, more people interacting with electromagnetic waves. And so if you're living in Los Angeles, if you're living in New York City, for example, those are high, high densities of people. And thus, you're swimming in a thicker ocean compared to me here in rural Western Montana. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean I'm not also surrounded by, it's just a lower density. There's virtually nowhere left on earth. Um, I think he said it earlier in the book that the only place left is like Eastern or Western, I can't remember, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. But like, that's it. Everywhere else, we're connected and we're swimming in this EMF ocean or this EMF soup, <laughs> so to speak. But my point being, the strategy could look like moving, moving out of the city into the countryside. Um, it could look like grounding, whether that's outside on a consistent basis or you implement these grounding pads and grounding bed sheets or, or, or mattress covers. So that way, because as we learned from Clint Ober in his book, when I went over that, I think earlier in the year, as long as you're grounding, that is literally anti-EMFs. And I remember reading that and then reading it to you guys. That struck a major chord with me. And now reading this book, that plays an even larger role as far as any type of health strategy at all. Whether you're an athlete, whether you're just looking, you know, you're a biohacker, whether you're someone recovering from a health condition or whether you're someone trying to mitigate or prevent getting a health condition, implementing some type of grounding apparatus. And again, I'm standing on one right now as I'm at my office because anywhere where you're interacting with technology, so wherever you're using your computer, wherever you're using your phone, uh, wherever you have a TV, you should likely have one of these EMF mats because as long as you're barefoot and connected to it, in theory, you're mitigating and you're actually preventing the damage from those EMFs. And so that's my number one recommendation. Like that's an easy one because everyone can't be outside, you know, in the grass all day, every day, even I can't. Uh, so, so just finding out where you work, especially if it's near electricity uh, amongst EMF technology, and that's in just a low hanging fruit. And that's a cheap investment into your health because these mats are, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 bucks. So you get two or three of them and you spend a third of your life, in theory, in your bed. So now you can get one of those mattress covers or, or, or sheets, EMF uh, sheets. And there you go. With 30 year life, you're protected from the EMFs because now we all have smart meters. And as I've read in this book, those are a major, major source of EMFs. And a lot of people have those smart meters relatively close to their bedrooms. And so that's like worst case scenario. Then you have to consider your Wi-Fi and your routers. Either hopefully your bed's way far away from that, but even then you're going to still interact with those EMFs. So probably unplugging those at night, turning all of your technology into airplane mode so that you're not dealing with those Bluetooth and Wi-Fi signals. So again, you start to stack a lot of these strategies and then you begin to build a strong anti-EMF health strategy, so to speak. And then your food and then your exercise becomes much more of a relevant health strategy. Because if you don't have that foundation, and as we've learned through a lot of different books and research, not just red light therapy, when I say that the light health is the foundation, but now we're learning that the invisible light is just as important as the visible light for our light health. And again, that light health is the foundation of all health. So if your mitochondria, for example, if, if, if those engines are broken, then what good is giving yourself the highest quality food or, or exercising to the nth degree if your motor literally cannot withstand or, or operate normally? So why give it the gasoline if your motor is broken? You have to fix the motors first. And don't get me wrong, eating the right food and even exercising can build up, you know, cause mitogenesis or increase mitochondrial density. But what's the point of increasing mitochondrial density if the EMFs are just going to break them down and lead to mitochondrial dysfunction? So again, these strategies related to light, whether that's getting full spectrum sunlight, 
using your red light therapy, but potentially most importantly, EMF mitigating strategies. So I'll get off my soapbox for a little moment here and we'll dive back into the book. And I'll begin here with the last couple sentences where we left off just to give you guys a little bit of a, of a refresher. And then we'll dive into the second half of this chapter entitled Irritable Heart. So the effects Frey demonstrated occur because the heart is an electrical organ and microwave pulses interfere with the heart's pacemaker. But in addition to these direct effects, there is a more basic problem. Microwave radiation and electricity in general starves the heart of oxygen because of effects at the cellular level. These cellular effects were discovered, oddly enough, by a team that included Paul Dudley White. In the 1940s and 1950s, while the Soviets were beginning to describe how radio waves cause neurasthenia in workers, the United States military was investigating the same disease in military recruits. The job that was assigned to Dr. Mandel Cohen and his associates in 1941 was to determine why so many soldiers fighting in the Second World War were reporting sick because of heart symptoms. Although their research spawned a number of shorter articles in medical journals, the main body of their work was a 150-page report that has been long forgotten. It was written for the Committee of Medical Research of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, the office that was uh, created by President Roosevelt to coordinate scientific and medical research related to the war effort. The only copy I located in the United States was on a single deteriorating roll of microfilm buried in the Pennsylvania storage facility of the National Library of Medicine. Unlike their predecessors, since the time of Sigmund Freud, this medical team not only took these anxiety-like complaints seriously, but looked for and found physical abnormalities in the majority of these patients. They preferred to call the illnesses, quote, neurocirculatory asthenia, rather than neurasthenia, irritable heart, effort syndrome, or anxiety neurosis, as it had variously been known since the 1860s. But the symptoms confronting them were the same as those first described by George Miller Beard in 1869, which there was a big uh, chapter five really covered George Miller Beard, who coined the term neurasthenia to describe people's symptoms they were getting seemingly from electricity. Although the focus of this team was the heart, the 144 soldiers enrolled in their study also had respiratory, neurological, muscular, and digestive problems. Their average patient, in addition to having heart palpitations, chest pains, and shortness of breath, was nervous, irritable, shaky, weak, depressed, and exhausted. He could not concentrate, was losing weight, and was troubled by insomnia. He complained of headaches, dizziness, and nausea, and sometimes suffered from diarrhea or vomiting. Yet standard laboratory tests, that's blood work, urinalysis, x-rays, electrocardiogram, and electroencephalogram, were usually quote-unquote within normal limits. Cohen, who directed the research, brought to it an open mind. Raised in Alabama and educated at Yale, he was then a young professor at Harvard Medical School who was already challenging delivered wisdom and lighting one of the earliest sparks of what would eventually be a revolution in psychiatry. For he had the courage to call Freudian psychoanalysis a cult back in the 1940s when its practitioners were asserting control in every academic institution, capturing the imagination of Hollywood and touching every aspect of American culture. Paul White, one of the two chief investigators, the other was neurologist Stanley Cobb, was already familiar with neurocirculatory asthenia from his civilian cardiology practice and thought, contrary to Freud, that it was a genuine physical disease. Under the leadership of these three individuals, the team confirmed that this was indeed the case. Using the techniques that were available in the 1940s, they accomplished what no one in the 19th century, when the epidemic began, had been able to do. They demonstrated conclusively, conclusively that neurasthenia had a physical and not psychological cause and they gave the medical community a list of objective signs by which the illness could be diagnosed. Most patients had a rapid resting heart rate, over 90 beats per minute, and a rapid respiratory rate, 
over 20 breaths per minute, as well as a tremor of the fingers and hyperactive knee and ankle reflexes. Most had cold hands, and half the patients had a visibly flushed face and neck. It has long been known that people with disorders of circulation have abnormal capillaries that can be most easily seen in the nail fold, the fold of the skin at the base of the fingernails. White's team routinely found such abnormal capillaries in their patients with neurocirculatory asthenia. They found that these patients were hypersensitive to heat, pain, and significantly to electricity. They reflexively pulled their hands away from electric shocks of much lower intensity than did normal healthy individuals. When asked to run on an inclined treadmill for three minutes, the majority of these patients could not do it. On average, they only lasted a minute and a half. Well guys, BioLite has what's called bundles. So simply go to the BioLite website, BioLite.shop, go under products and there will be a tab for bundles. With each of these bundles, there's three of them, you save 20% off on the entire package. For example, we have the Beauty Bundle, which includes a Shine and Stand, a Guardian Plus, and the Longev Revive Cream. So that bundle of three products, you save 20% off the entire package. There's the Recovery Bundle, that includes the Recharge Plus Panel, the Guardian Mouthpiece, and then the Longev recover cream and that recover cream is just like the revive cream except it has added cbd oil infused into it that package of three items all comes at 20 percent off and then the last bundle which is the most versatile bundle in the sense that you get to pick and choose what products you want you get to pick and choose from the recharge plus panel the restore plus panel or the matrix full body mat and then you get to choose between the guardian and guardian plus and then you get to choose between the revive and the recover cream it also includes the shine and stand so you get to choose between black and silver by purchasing those four products in the ultimate bundle you save 20% off all of the products you also save 20% off shipping so literally the entire package and shipping is 20% off so if you're ever needing some red light therapy products and are looking for a discount just remember the bundles are always 20% off 365 days a year no coupon code necessary their heart rate after such exercise was excessively fast their oxygen consumption during the exercise was abnormally low, and most significantly, their ventilatory efficiency was abnormally low. This means that they used less oxygen and exhaled less carbon dioxide than a normal person even when they breathed the same amount of air. To compensate, they breathed more air rapidly than a healthy person and were still not able to continue running because their bodies were still not using enough oxygen. A 15-minute walk on the same treadmill gave similar results. All subjects were able to complete this easier task. However, on average, the patients with neurocirculatory asthenia breathed 15% more air per minute than healthy volunteers in order to consume the same amount of oxygen. And although, by breathing faster, the patients with neurocirculatory asthenia managed to consume the same amount of oxygen as the healthy volunteers, they had twice as much lactic acid in their blood, indicating that their cells were not using the oxygen efficiently. Compared to healthy individuals, people with this disorder were able to extract less oxygen from the same amount of air, and their cells were able to extract less energy from the same amount of oxygen. The researchers concluded that these patients suffered from a defect of aerobic metabolism. In other words, something was wrong with their mitochondria, the powerhouses of their cells. The patients correctly complained that they could not get enough air. This was starving all of their organs of oxygen and causing both their heart symptoms and their other disabling complaints. Patients with neurocirculatory asthenia were consequently unable to hold their breath for anything like a normal period of time, even when breathing oxygen. During the five years of Cohen's team's study, Several types of treatment were attempted with different groups of patients. Oral testosterone, massive doses of vitamin B complex, thiamine, cytochrome C, psychotherapy, and of course, physical training under a professional trainer. None of these programs produced any improvement in symptoms or endurance. Quote, We conclude, wrote the team in 1946 of June, the neurocirculatory asthenia is a condition that actually exists and has not been invented by patients or medical observers. It is not malingering or simply a mechanism aroused during wartime for purposes of evading military service. 
the disorder is quite common both as a civilian and as a service problem, unquote. They objected to Freud's term anxiety neurosis because anxiety was obviously a result and not a cause of the profound physical effects of not being able to get enough air. In fact, these researchers virtually disproved the theory that the disease was caused by stress or anxiety. It was not caused by hyperventilation. Their patients did not have elevated levels of stress hormones in their urine. A 20-year follow-up study of civilians with neurocirculatory asthenia revealed that these people typically did not develop any of the diseases that are supposed to be caused by anxiety, such as high blood pressure, peptic ulcer, asthma, or ulcerative colitis. However, they did have abnormal electrocardiograms that indicated that the heart muscle was being starved of oxygen and that they were sometimes indistinguishable from the EKGs of people who had actual coronary artery disease or actual structural damage to the heart. The connection to electricity was provided by the Soviets. Soviet researchers during the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s described physical signs and symptoms and EKG changes caused by radio waves that were identical to those that White and others had first reported in the 1930s and 1940s. The EKG changes indicated both conduction blocks and oxygen deprivation to the heart. The Soviet scientists, in agreement with Cohen and White's team, concluded that these patients were suffering from a defect of aerobic metabolism. Something was wrong with the mitochondria in their cells. And they discovered what that defect was. Scientists included Yuri Demininsky, Mikhail Shandala, and another name I can't pronounce, <laughs> working in Kiev. And they proved, ultimately, that the activity of the electron transport chain the mitochondrial enzymes that extract energy from our food, is diminished not only in animals that are exposed to radio waves, but in animals exposed to magnetic fields from ordinary electric power lines. So think about that, guys. The mitochondria are negatively affected not just from radio waves, but simply from magnetic fields from electric power lines. And then look at the world we live in today with 5G towers and all types of magnetic and radio waves we don't even know about. Uh, but we'll continue on here. The first war in which the electric telegraph was widely used, the American Civil War, was also the first in which, quote-unquote, irritable heart was a prominent disease. A young physician named Jacob M. DaCosta, visiting physician at a military hospital in Philadelphia, described the typical patient. Quote, a man who had been for some months or longer in active service, he wrote, would be seized with diarrhea, annoying yet not severe enough to keep him out of the field. Or, attacked with diarrhea or fever, he rejoined, after a short stay in the hospital, his command and again underwent the exertions of his soldier's life. He soon noticed that he could not bear them as formerly. He got out of breath, could not keep up with his comrades, was annoyed with dizziness and palpitation, and with pain in his chest. His accoutrements oppressed him, and all this though he appeared well and healthy. Seeking advice from the surgeon of the regiment, it was decided that he was unfit for duty and he was sent to a hospital where his persistently quick-acting heart confirmed his story, though he looked like a man in sound condition. End quote. Exposure to electricity in this war was universal. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, the East and West Coast had not yet been linked, and most of the country west of the Mississippi was not yet served by any telegraph lines. But in this war, every soldier, at least on the Union side, marched and camped near such lines. From the attack on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861, until General Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the United States Military Telegraph Corps rolled out 15,000 389 miles of telegraph lines on the heels of the marching troops so that military commanders in Washington could communicate instantly with all of the troops at their encampments. After the war, all of these temporary lines were dismantled and disposed of. Quote, Hardly a day intervened when General Grant did not know the exact state of facts with me more than 1,500 miles off as the wires ran wrote General Sherman in 1864. Quote, 
On the field, a thin insulated wire may be run on improvised stakes or from tree to tree for six or more miles in a couple of hours, and I have seen operators so skillful that by cutting the wire, they would receive a message from a distant station with their tongues, end quote. Because the distinctive symptoms of irritable heart were encountered in every army of the United States and attracted the attention of so many of its medical officers, DaCosta was puzzled that no one had described such a disease in any previous war. But telegraphic communications were never before used to such an extent in war. In the British Blue Book of the Crimean War, a conflict which lasted from 1853 to 56, DaCosta found two references to some troops being admitted to hospitals for, quote, palpitations, and he found possible hints of the same problem being reported in India during the Indian Rebellion of 1857-58. to These were also the only two conflicts prior to the American Civil War in which some telegraph lines were erected to connect command headquarters with troop units. DaCosta wrote that he searched through medical documents from many previous conflicts and did not even find a hint of such a disease prior to the Crimean War. During the next several decades, irritable heart attracted relatively little interest. It was reported among British troops in India and South Africa, and occasionally among soldiers of other nations. But the number of cases was small. Even during the Civil War, what DaCosta considered, quote, common, did not amount to many cases by today's standards. In his day, when heart disease was practically non-existent, the appearance of 1,200 cases of chest pain among 2 million young soldiers caught his attention like an unfamiliar reef suddenly materialized in a well-traveled shipping lane across an otherwise calm sea, a sea that was not further disturbed until 1914. But shortly after the First World War broke out, in a time when heart disease was still rare in the general population and cardiology did not even exist as a separate medical specialty, soldiers began reporting sick with chest pain and shortness of breath, not by the hundreds, but by the tens of thousands. Out of the 6.5 million young men that fought in the British Army and Navy, over 100,000 were discharged and pensioned with a diagnosis of, quote, heart disease. Most of these men had irritable heart, also called, quote, DaCosta's syndrome or, quote, effort syndrome. In the United States Army, such cases were all listed under, quote, valvular disorders of the heart and were the third most common medical cause for discharge from the Army. The same disease also occurred in the Air Force, but was almost always diagnosed as, quote, flying sickness, thought to be caused by repeated exposure to reduced oxygen pressure at high altitudes. Similar reports also came from Germany, Austria, Italy, and France. So enormous was the problem that the United States Surgeon General ordered 4 million soldiers training in the army camps to be given cardiac examinations before being sent overseas. Effer syndrome was, quote, far away the most common disorder encountered and transcended in interest and importance all the other heart affections combined, said one of the examining physicians, Lewis A. Connor. Some soldiers in this war developed Effer syndrome after shell shock or exposure to poison gas. Many more had no such history. All, however, had gone into battle using a newfangled form of communication. The United Kingdom declared war on Germany on August 4, 1914, two days after Germany invaded its ally, France. The British Army began embarking for France on August 9th and continued on to Belgium, reaching the city of Mons on August 22nd without the aid of the wireless telegraph. While in Mons, a 1500-watt mobile radio set, having a range of 60 to 80 miles, was supplied to the British Army signal troops. It was during this retreat from Mons that many British soldiers first became ill with chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, and rapid heartbeat and were sent back to England to be evaluated for possible heart disease. Exposure to radio was universal and intense. A knapsack radio with a range of 5 miles was used by the British Army in all trench warfare on the front lines. Every battalion carried two such sets each having two operators in the front line with the infantry. One or two hundred yards behind, back with the reserve, were two more sets and two more operators. 
A mile further behind at Brigade Headquarters was a larger radio set. Two miles back at Divisional Headquarters was a 500-watt set. And six miles behind the front lines at Army Headquarters was a 1,500-watt radio wagon with a 120-foot steel mast and an umbrella-type aerial. Each operator relayed the telegraph messages received from in front or behind him. All cavalry divisions and brigades were assigned radio wagons and knapsack sets. Cavalry scouts carried special sets right on their horses that were called, quote, whisker wireless because of the antenna that sprouted from the horse's flanks like the quills of a porcupine. Most aircraft carried lightweight radio sets using the metal frame of the airplane as an antenna. German war zeppelins and French dirigibles carried much more powerful sets, and Japan had wireless sets in its war balloons. Radio sets on ships made it possible for naval battle lines to spread out in formations 200 or 300 miles long. Even submarines, while cruising below the surface, sent up a short mast or an insulated jet of water as an antenna for the coded radio messages they broadcasted and received. In the Second World War, Irritable Heart, now called neurocirculatory asthenia, returned with a vengeance. Radar joined radio for the first time in this war, and it too was universal and intense. Like children with a new toy, every nation devised as many uses for it as possible. Britain, for example, peppered its coastline with hundreds of early warning radars emitting more than half a million watts each and outfitted all of its airplanes with powerful radars that could detect objects as small as a submarine periscope. More than 2,000 portable radars, accompanied by 105-foot-tall portable towers, were de deployed by the British Army. 2,000 more, quote, gun-laying radars assisted anti-aircraft guns in tracking and shooting down every enemy aircraft. The ships of the Royal Navy sported surface radars with a power of up to 1 million watts, as well as air search radars and microwave radars that detected submarines and were used for navigation. The Americans deployed 500 early warning radars on board ships and an additional early warning radars on aircraft, each having a power of 1 million watts. They used portable radar sets at beachheads and airfields in the South Pacific and thousands of microwave radars on ships, aircraft, and Navy blimps. From 1941 to 1945, the Radiation Laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology was kept busy by its military masters developing some 100 different types of radar for various uses in the war. The other powers fielded radar installations with equal vigor on land, at sea, and in air. Germany deployed over 1,000 ground-based early warning radars in Europe, as well as thousands of shipborne, airborne, and gun-laying radars. The Soviet Union did likewise, as did Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, the Netherlands, France, Italy, and Hungary. Wherever a soldier was asked to fight, he was bathed in an ever-thickening soup of pulsed radio wave and microwave frequencies. And he succumbed in large numbers in the armies, navies, and air forces of every nation. It was during this war that the first rigorous program of medical research was conducted on soldiers with this disease. By this time, Freud's proposed term, quote, anxiety neurosis, had taken firm hold among army doctors. Members of the Air Force who had heart symptoms were now receiving a diagnosis of LMF, standing for lack of moral fiber. Cohen's team was stacked with psychiatrists, but to their surprise, and guided by cardiologist Paul White, they found objective evidence of a real disease that they concluded was not caused by anxiety. Largely because of the prestige of this team, research into neurocirculatory asthenia continued in the United States throughout the 1950s, in Sweden, Finland, Portugal, and France in the 1970s and 1980s, and even in Israel and Italy into the 1990s. But a growing stigma was attached to any doctor who still believed in the physical causation of this disease. Although the dominance of the Freudians had waned, they left an indelible mark not only in psychiatry, but on all of medicine. Today, in the West, 
only anxiety label remains, and people with symptoms of neurocirculatory asthenia are automatically given a psychiatric diagnosis and very likely a paper bag to breathe in. Ironically, Freud himself, although he coined the term anxiety neurosis, thought that its symptoms were not mentally caused, quote, nor amendable to psychotherapy. Meanwhile, an unending stream of patients continued to appear in doctors' offices suffering from unexplained exhaustion, often accompanied by chest pain and a shortness of breath, and a few courageous doctors stubbornly continued to insist that psychiatric problems could not explain them all. In 1988, the term, quote, chronic fatigue syndrome, or CFS, was coined by Gary Holmes at the Center for Disease Control, and it continues to be applied by some doctors to patients whose most prominent symptom is exhaustion. And just as a sidestep, of course, if there's metabolic dysfunction or mitochondrial dysfunction, you're going to have low energy because your mitochondria aren't pumping out ATP like they should. So, of course, anyone with mitochondrial dysfunction is likely going to have some semblance of this chronic fatigue syndrome. But moving along here, those doctors are still very much in the minority. Based on their reports, the CDC estimates that the prevalence of CFS is between 0.2% and 2.5% of the population, while their counterparts in the psychiatric community tell us that as many as one person in six suffering from the identical symptoms fits the criteria for anxiety disorder or depression. To confuse the matter still further, the same set of symptoms was called myalgic encephalomyelitis in England as early as 1956, a name that focused attention on muscle pains and neurological symptoms rather than fatigue. Finally, in 2011, doctors from 13 countries got together and adopted a set of international consensus criteria that recommends abandoning the name chronic fatigue syndrome and applying myalgic encephalomyelitis to all patients who suffer from post-exertional exhaustion plus specific neurological, cardiovascular, respiratory, immune, gastrointestinal, and other impairments. This international, quote, consensus effort, however, is doomed to failure. It completely ignores the psychiatric community, which sees far more of these patients, and it pretends that the schism that emerged from the World War II never occurred. In the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and most of Asia, the older term neurasthenia persists today. That term is still widely applied to the full spectrum of symptoms described by George Beard in 1869. In those parts of the world, it is generally recognized that exposure to toxic agents, both chemical and electromagnetic, often causes this disease. According to published literature, all of these diseases, neurocirculatory asthenia, radio wave sickness, anxiety disorder, chronic fatigue syndrome, and myalgic encephalomyelitis, predisposed to elevated levels of blood cholesterol and all carry an increased risk of death from heart disease. So do porphyria and oxygen deprivation. The fundamental defect in this disease of many names is that although enough oxygen and nutrients reach the cells, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cells, cannot efficiently use that oxygen and those nutrients and not enough energy is produced to satisfy the requirements of heart, brain, muscles, and organs. I'm going to read that one more time. This is one of the areas I have underlined and highlighted. So again, just to backtrack a little bit from the book here, we're talking about all these different names that this condition, this health condition has that has arisen from excess electromagnetic radiation, whether you want to call it radio waves, different forms of electricity, the power lines, different types of radiation. This is the fundamental breakdown of what causes these health conditions and increased risk of metabolic diseases and heart disorders and and so on and so forth. And, And this is really the crux of the book. So again, The fundamental defect in this disease of many names is that although enough oxygen and nutrients reach the cells, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cells, cannot efficiently use that oxygen and those nutrients, and not enough energy is produced to satisfy the requirements of the heart, brain, muscles, and organs. This effectively starves the entire body, including the heart, of oxygen and can eventually damage the heart. In addition, 
Neither sugars nor fats are efficiently utilized by the cells, causing unutilized sugar to build up in the blood, leading to diabetes, as well as unutilized fats to be deposited in the arteries. And we have a good idea of precisely where the defect is located. People with this disease have reduced activity of a porphyrin-containing enzyme called cytochrome oxidase, which resides within the mitochondria and delivers electrons from the food we eat to the oxygen we breathe. Its activity is impaired in all of the incarnations of this disease. Mitochondrial dysfunction has been reported in chronic fatigue syndrome and in anxiety disorder. Muscle biopsies in these patients show reduced cytochrome oxidase activity. Impaired glucose metabolism is well known in radio wave sickness, as is an important impairment of cytochrome oxidase activity in animals exposed to even extremely low levels of radio waves. And the neurological and cardiac symptoms of porphyria are widely blamed on a deficiency of cytochrome oxidase and cytochrome C, the heme-containing enzymes of respiration. Recently, zoologist Neelima Kumar of Punjab University in India proved elegantly that cellular respiration can be brought to a standstill in honeybees merely by exposing them to a cell phone for 10 minutes. The concentration of total carbohydrates in their honeycomb, which is what bees' blood is called, rose from 1.29 to 1.5 milligrams per milliliter. After 20 minutes, it rose to 1.73 milligrams per milliliter. The glucose content rose from 0.218 to 0.231 to 0.277 milligrams per milliliter. Total lipids rose from 2.06 to 3.03 to 4.5 milligrams per milliliter. Cholesterol rose from 0.23 to 1.318 to 2.565 milligrams per milliliter. Total protein rose from 0.475 to 0.525 to 0.825 milligrams per milliliter. In other words, after just 10 minutes of exposure to a cell phone, the bees practically could not metabolize sugars, proteins, or fats. Mitochondria are essentially the same in bees and in humans, but since their metabolism is so much faster, electric fields affect bees much more quickly. So that's a huge, huge, not even a side note, a message for this entire book and for you people listening about electromagnetic activity. Again, like the book just said, since the metabolism of the bees are so much faster, they're going to react sooner to sources in the environment, stressors in the environment before humans will. So again, the fact that we see essentially the mitochondria interact so negatively with electromagnetic radiation, it's not tough to connect the dots and and kind of (laughs) like snowball effect to a slower metabolism being in humans that, yeah, we're seeing the same thing, but just not as rapidly or not as quickly as bees. And again, it's like the silent killer, the unseen invisible killer. Just because we can't feel it in the moment doesn't mean it's not happening. When we look to the bees, that's a big sign, right? Uh, But moving along here. In the 20th century, particularly after World War II, a barrage of toxic chemicals and electromagnetic fields, EMFs, began to significantly interfere with the breathing of our cells. We know from work at Columbia University that even tiny electric fields alter the speed of electron transport for cytochrome oxidase. Researchers Martin Blank and Reba Goodman thought that the explanation lay in the most basic of physical principles. Quote, EMF, they wrote in 2009, acts as a force that competes with the chemical forces in a reaction. End quote. Scientists at the Environmental Protection Agency, John Alice and William Joins, finding a similar effect from radio waves, developed a variant theory along the same lines. They speculated that the iron atoms in the porphyrin-containing enzymes were set into motion by the oscillating electric fields interfering with their ability to transport electrons. It was the English physiologist John Scott Haldane who first suggested in his classic book, Respiration, that quote-unquote soldier's heart was caused by not anxiety but by a chronic lack of oxygen. Mandel Cohen later proved that the defect was not in the lungs, but in the cells. 
These patients continually gulped air, not because they were neurotic, but because they really could not get enough of it. You might as well have put them in an atmosphere that contained only 15% oxygen instead of 21%, or transported them to an altitude of 15,000 feet. Their chests hurt and their hearts beat fast, not because of panic, but because they craved air. And their hearts craved oxygen, not because their coronary arteries were blocked, but because their cells could not fully utilize the air they were breathing. These patients were not psychiatric cases. They were warnings for the world. For the same thing was also happening to the civilian population. They too were being slowly asphyxiated, and the pandemic of heart disease that was well underway in the 1950s was one result. Even in people who did not have a porphyrin enzyme deficiency, the mitochondria in their cells were still struggling, to some smaller degree, to metabolize carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Unburned fats, together with cholesterol that transported those fats in the blood, were being deposited on the walls of arteries. Humans and animals were not able to push their hearts quite as far as before without showing signs of stress and disease. This takes its clearest toll on the body when it is pushed to its limits, for example in athletes, and in soldiers during wars. The real story is told by astonishing statistics. When I began my research, I had only Samuel Milham's data. Since he found such a large difference in rural disease rates in 1940 between the five least and five most electrified states, I wanted to see what would happen if I calculated those rates for all 48 states and plotted the numbers on a graph. I looked up rural mortality rates in volumes of the vital statistics of the United States. I calculated the percent of electrification for each state by dividing the number of its residential electric customers, as published by the Edison Electric Institute, by the total number of its household, as published by the United States Census. The results for 1931 and 1940 are pictured in figures 1 and 2. Not only is there a 5 to 6 fold difference in mortality from the rural heart disease between the most and least electrified states, but all of the data points come very close to line on the same line. The more a state was electrified, the more rural heart disease it had. The amount of rural heart disease was proportional to the number of households that had electricity. And just to give you guys a, a, an idea of what this graph looks like, it's kind of like a rainbow graph that starts low and then has a nice sloping upward trajectory. And so on the top right of the graph, which would be those states with the highest rate of rural disease and that were the most electrified, you have Massachusetts and New York. And not too far behind, you have New Jersey, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, the states that had the lowest rate of rural heart disease and the lowest percent of electrification, and keep in mind, guys, this is 1931, uh, we have, uh, let's see, the bottom four or five, we have South Carolina, um, Oklahoma, Alabama, Arkansas, New Mexico, and Mississippi. And when we go to 1940, uh, and again, this is back in the 1940s, so nine years later, um, Massachusetts is by itself as the most electrified and with the highest rate of rural disease. Again, not far behind you have New York, and then not far behind that you have um, kind of a three-way tie with Rhode Island, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. And again, on the opposite side of the spectrum with, with low percent uh, electrification, low rural heart disease... Uh, you have New Mexico, and then not far behind you have Arkansas and Mississippi. So, kind of interesting, and me being from Montana, I was curious where I was, and Montana is kind of near, just under the uh, bottom half of it all. Not quite halfway, but a little lower. But it sticks out to me that New Mexico, when you look at the graph actually, especially in 1940, it's literally has the lowest rate of rural disease even though it doesn't necessarily have the lowest rate of electrification. For example, Mississippi has lower electrification, almost twice as high rate of rural heart disease. And also what's interesting is Arizona, who has a percent electrification of around 60, which should have put it around the middle of the whole pack, 
is actually right there with New Mexico as having the lowest rate of rural disease. So just let me spit some numbers at you for a second. As far as percent electrification, like New York and Massachusetts were sitting around 80, almost 90. Arizona's at about 58. New Mexico's at about 28. But both New Mexico and Arizona have by far the lowest rate of rural disease at around 80 people per 100,000 people population, whereas Massachusetts, New York is around 480 deaths per 100,000. So you have a sixth of the deaths, and for Arizona, only slightly less electrification. And I've always heard that Arizona kind of has this, uh, I don't know if this is esoteric or not, but there's like a, a vortex or a, kind of an energy in that area, in that state. So that almost speaks towards these statistics where even though there's more electrification, people are still relatively protected for one reason or another in that state. So apparently, and again, this is 83 years ago, Arizona and New Mexico were the places to live as far as low rates of death, or at least for heart disease specifically relative to electricity. But moving along back to the book here. What is even more remarkable is that the death rates from the heart disease in unelectrified rural areas of the United States in 1931, before the rural electrification program got into gear, were still as low as the death rates for the whole United States prior to the beginning of the heart disease epidemic in the 19th century. In 1850, the first consensus year in which mortality uh, data were collected, a total of 2,527 deaths from heart disease were recorded in the nation. Heart disease ranked 25th among causes of death in that year. About as many people died from accidental drowning as from heart disease. Heart disease was something that occurred mainly in young children and in old age, and was predominantly a rural rather than an urban disease because farmers lived longer than city dwellers. In order to realistically compare 19th century statistics with those of today, I had to make some adjustments to the consensus figures. The consensus enumerators in 1850, 1860, and 1870 had only the numbers reported to them from memory by the households they visited as to who had died during the previous year and from what causes. These numbers were estimated by the consensus office to be deficient on average by about 40%. In the census for 1880, the numbers were supplemented by reports from physicians and averaged only 19% short of the truth. By 1890, Eight northeastern states plus the District of Columbia had passed laws requiring the official registration of all deaths, and the statistics for those registration states were considered accurate to within 2 or 3%. By 1910, the registration area had expanded to 23 states, and by 1930, only Texas did not require registration of deaths. Another complicating factor is that heart failure was sometimes not evident except for the edema it caused, and therefore edema, then called dropsy, or dropsy, was sometimes reported as the only cause of death, although the death was most likely to have been caused by either heart or kidney disease. Yet a further complication is the appearance of Bright's disease for the first time in the tables for 1870. This was the new term for the type of kidney disease that caused edema. Its prevalence in 1870 was reported to be 4.5 cases per 100,000 population. With these complexities in mind, I have calculated the approximate rates of death from cardiovascular disease for each decade from 1850 to 2010, adding the figures for dropsy, when that term was still in use until 1900, and subtracting 4.5 per 100,000 for the years of 1850 and 1860. I added a correction factor of 40% for 1850, 1860, and 1870, and 19% for 1880. I included reports of deaths from all diseases of heart, arteries, and blood pressure. Beginning with 1890, I used only the figures of the death registration states, which by 1930 included the entire country except for Texas. The results are as follows. And so there's a table here I'll read for you guys. Of course, it's entitled Death Rates from Cardiovascular Disease. And this is per 100,000 population. And this is for the entire country as he outlined with those uh, nuances. So I'm going to skip decades. I'll go 50 years at a time. And so in 1850, 
there were 77 deaths from cardiovascular disease, 77. And of course, electrification of the world began in the late 1800s. And so by 1900, it went from 77 to 154. And of course, we go through the world wars where we have the integration of radio and radio frequencies and radar technology. So from 1900 at 154, 1950 is 384. And of course, as we get uh, to 2000, we have the integration of cell phones and then wireless phones and then other innovations in electricity and, and electrical technology. So 1950, we have 384. And then 2000, we have 280, which is a dip, right? And then 2017, we have 214. So we saw this precipitous rise from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. And then in route to present day, there's actually been a dip. But let's hear from Arthur Furstenberg why that's the case. 1910 was the first year in which the mortality in cities surpassed that in the countryside. But the greatest disparities emerged in the countryside. In the northeastern states, which in 1910 had the greatest use of telegraphs, telephones, and now electric lights and power, and the densest networks of wires crisscrossing the land, the rural areas had as much mortality from cardiovascular disease or more than the cities. The rural mortality rate of Connecticut was then 234, of New York 279, and of Massachusetts 296. By contrast, Colorado's rural rate was still 100 and Washington's 92. Kentucky's rural rate at 88.5 was only 44% of its urban rate, which was at 202. Heart disease rose steadily with electrification, as we saw in figures 1 and 2, and reached a peak when rural electrification approached 100% during the 1950s. Rates of heart disease then leveled off for three decades and began to drop again, or so it seems at first glance. A closer look, however, shows the true picture. These are just mortality rates. The number of people walking around with heart disease, the prevalence rate, actually continued to rise and is still rising today. Mortality stopped rising in the 1950s because of the introduction of anticoagulants like heparin and later aspirin, both to treat heart attacks and to prevent them. In the succeeding decades, the ever more aggressive use of anticoagulants, drugs to lower blood pressure, cardiac bypass surgery, balloon angioplasty, coronary stents, pacemakers, and even heart transplants has simply allowed an ever-growing number of people with heart disease to stay alive. But people are not having fewer heart attacks, they are having more. The Framingham Heart Study showed that at any given age, the chance of having a first heart attack was essentially the same during the 1990s as it was during the 1960s. This came as something of a surprise. By giving people statin drugs to lower their cholesterol, doctors thought they were going to save people from having clogged arteries, which was supposed to automatically mean healthier hearts. It hasn't turned out that way. And in another study, scientists involved in the Minnesota Heart Survey discovered in 2001 that although fewer hospital patients were being diagnosed with coronary heart disease, more patients were being diagnosed with heart-related chest pain. In fact, between 1985 and 1995, the rate of unstable angina had increased by 56% in men and by 30% in women. The number of people with congestive heart failure has also continued to steadily rise. Researchers at the Mayo Clinic searched for two decades of their lost records and discovered that the incidence of heart failure was 8.3% higher during the period 1996 to 2000 than it had been during 1979 to 1984. The true situation is much worse still. Those numbers reflect only people newly diagnosed with heart failure. The increase in the total number of people walking around with this condition is astonishing, and only a small part of the increase is due to the aging of the population. Doctors from Cook County Hospital, Loyola University Medical School, and the Centers for Disease Control examined patient records from a representative sample of American hospitals and found that the numbers of patients with a diagnosis of heart failure more than doubled between 1973 and 1986. A later similar study by scientists at the Centers for Disease Control found that this trend had continued. The number of hospitalizations for heart failure tripled between 1979 and 2004, the age-adjusted rate doubled, 
and the greatest increase occurred in people under the age of 65 years old. A similar study of patients at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit showed that the annual prevalence of congestive heart failure had almost quadrupled from 1989 to 1999. Young people, as the 3,000 alarmed doctors who signed the Freeburger Appeal affirmed, are having heart attacks at an unprecedented rate. In the United States, as great a percentage of 40-year-olds today have cardiovascular disease as the percentage of 70-year-olds that had cardiovascular disease back in 1970. Close to one quarter of Americans aged 40 to 44 today have some form of cardiovascular disease. And the stress on even younger hearts is not confined to athletes. In 2005, researchers at the Centers for Disease Control surveying the health of adolescents and young adults aged 15 to 34 found to their surprise that between 1989 and 1998, rates of sudden cardiac death in young men had risen 11%, and in young women had risen 30%, and that rates of mortality from enlarged heart, heart rhythm disturbances, pulmonary heart disease, and hypertensive heart disease had also increased in this young population. In the 21st century, this trend has continued. The number of heart attacks in Americans in their 20s rose by 20% between 1999 and 2006, and the mortality from all types of heart disease in this age group rose by one-third. In 2014, among patients between the ages of 35 and 74 who were hospitalized with heart attacks, one-third were below the age of 54. Developing countries are no better off. They have already followed the developed countries down the primrose path of electrification, and they are following us even faster to the wholesale embrace of wireless technology. The consequences are inevitable. Heart disease was once unimportant in low-income nations. It is now the number one killer of human beings in every region of the world except one. Only in sub-Saharan Africa, in 2017, was heart disease still outranked by diseases of poverty, such as AIDS and pneumonia, as a cause of mortality. In spite of the billions being spent on conquering heart disease, the medical community is still groping in the dark. It will not win this war so long as it fails to recognize that the main factor that has been causing this pandemic for 150 years is the electrification of the world. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the chapter on the irritable heart. I hope that helps continue to um, paint a portrayal of what electricity, what EMFs, what radiation has done to our health. And next week in part three, I'm not going to read a straight chapter, but I'm going to pick out some select parts of, of different chapters to highlight, like I illuminated at the beginning of this episode, parts such as the effect of the increase in electrification of the world has on birds, what it has on trees and plants, what it has on insects, and of course, other impacts on humans. And I think that'll be a nice well-rounded way of, of closing out this uh, three-part series on electricity and EMFs. And so I hope that, again, it just broadens the perspective and what you choose to do with the information is your choice, but at least if you've listened to this episode, which you have if you're to this point, man, it, it's tough to think a different way when you've heard this type of information. It's tough to see the world through an alternative lens when you hear this information. And again, this isn't just a story tale, Alfred Hitchcock horror story. This is a well, well documented, a well, well cited book. And I, I highly recommend that anyone that's interested in this type of information Go and get the book and read it in its entirety, because of course that's even more impactful than just what I'm reading. But I'm also hoping that just what I'm reading is impactful enough to get you interested and curious to, you know, be proactive and make some moves to make some alterations in your lifestyle or your habits, whether that's adopting more grounding outside or grounding mats in your house or changing the way you utilize your electricity, your, your phone, your Wi-Fi, your routers, uh, TV, all that stuff, because it truly plays a role on your metabolic health, which as we all know now, means it plays a role on your mitochondrial health. And I think we're all gathered here listening to the Red Light Report, because we're interested in red light therapy and its impact on health, which is another way of saying its impact on our mitochondria's health. So we can't ignore the bad stuff, the bad light, if we're trying to improve our health, 
it's easy to get riled up about the exciting stuff about improving our health with lights such as red light and near-infrared light and, and the sunlight in proper dosages. But we also need to know what's out there that is degenerating our health, that's degenerating our mitochondria. And remember, humans can see less than 1% of all light that is around us. So we see a very small sliver of the entire electromagnetic radiation, and it's the rest of that spectrum that is used for communication, such as the radars, the radios, TV, Wi-Fi. I mean, this is stuff we can't see, but it truly does impact our health. So I'll just leave it there. I could keep, I could keep going on, but I hope you found it interesting. We'll wrap this up next week. As always, go outside, get your full spectrum light, use your red light therapy as necessary, and use your EMF mitigating tactics starting today going forward. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you guys next week. And as always, light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.